Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. The locust infestation that swept over farms in rural Kenya from December 2019, and just remember, the article is dated August 2020. So this is going all the way back to December 2019. Has left farmers not only counting crop losses, but struggling with emerging environmental and health problems. The swarms that have been the worst seen in Kenya for 70 years, and experts are concerned that swarms later in the year will be even larger. Desert locusts have often been called the world's most devastating pest, and for good reason. Swarms form when locust numbers increase and they become crowded. This causes a switch from a relatively harmless solitary phase to a gregarious sociable phase. In this phase, the insects are able to multiply 20-fold in three months, and each densities of 80 million per square kilometer. Each can consume two grams of vegetation every day. Combined, a swarm of 80 million can consume food equivalent to that eaten by 35,000 people per day. In 2020, locusts have swarmed in large numbers in dozens of countries, including Kenya, Ethiopia, Uganda, Somalia, Eritrea, India, Pakistan, Iran, Yemen, Oman, and Saudi Arabia. When swarms affect several countries at once in very large numbers, it is known as a plague. With that in mind, we'll be introduced to a similar situation, a plague, introduced to us in the book of Joel. Before we uh, go further, let's take some time to uh, pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together, and then we'll proceed. Lord, thank you for this time to study your word, to contemplate what you have to say to us through the message of uh, your message through the prophet Joel. Lord, it may seem very odd and strange for us to think, well, what could a message like this have, have for us? Well, since we know that your word is profitable for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, we know it will be, will be good for our souls, and we trust it to be so. May you guide our time together, in Jesus' name, amen. So if you would, please turn your Bibles to the book of Joel. Uh, if you have a pew Bible, it should be on page 712, 712. And we'll be uh, preaching on verses 1 through 20, chapter 1. Right now, let's go ahead and I will read the passage and please follow along uh, as you can. 
Joel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns, because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call in a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. To the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord, Alas for the day! For the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our rise? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down. Because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed, because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The word of the Lord. So as we read that first chapter in Joel, why does something as strange as a locust infestation appear to have such a prominent part in a book of the Bible? 
As odd as it might seem, God uses such a devastating event to demonstrate this overarching biblical theme. And I'll be referring to this a couple of times during our time together. And the theme is this. God's glory in salvation through judgment is displayed in what's called the day of the Lord. God's glory in salvation through judgment as displayed in what is called the day of the Lord. Pretty intimidating picture of a locust up there, isn't it? Think of 80 million of them all at the same time swarming, swarming, swarming. I think that would definitely, as the writer in the, in the BBC article mentioned, I think that would classify as a plague, would you not? So briefly, background of the book. Uh, taking up a couple of more things that uh, Ben shared with us last Sunday. This book is the proclamation of a prophet whose name is Joel. Joel's name means Yahweh is God. But other than the name of his father, we know nothing about Joel. We don't know where he lived. We don't know when he lived. We don't know to whom he was specifically speaking, although there'll be some clues about that in just a bit. And in some ways, um, while the timing, there's some hints in the, in the book that Joel spoke before the exile occurred to uh, Babylon, a lot of things about the context of this book are actually quite unknown. And in some ways, if you think about it, there's actually a bit of a purpose to that. And the reason why I think there and many commentators believe that there is this purpose to lack of detail about the book. So instead of us getting maybe bogged down in some of the genealogies behind the person we don't know, or getting uh, sidetracked by, um, well, what time did this occur? Or where was Joel when he said these things? we're actually encouraged to focus on the one who actually sent the prophet to speak. And we're actually encouraged to focus on his message to the people, not the messenger. And related to that, because of the lack of specifics here, I think there's also an encouragement to view this message in a timeless way. In other words, the main focus of God's glory and salvation through judgment displayed through the day of the Lord is a message of repentance looking for salvation from or through or from anything but God. That's a timeless message. A message that if we look for repentance from anything but God, we will be undone. So as we uh, go forward, listen to those clues, listen to things that um, mention that same theme as we go forward. So let's dive into the book now. Let's shift to um, verse 1. If you read verse 1, just one sentence, the word of the Lord that came to Joel. Well, the word Lord that's mentioned there is the covenant 
name, the covenant-keeping name of God, Yahweh. He is the one who established his covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And he reaffirmed that covenant uh, under Moses as he led the people out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. He further confirmed his covenant to his people through the throne of David and in the dwelling, in, uh, by indwelling the temple that Solomon built. So Yahweh is a covenant-keeping God who is faithful to administer all aspects of his covenant. And that is the God who is giving this message to Joel, the message that we'll hear about in more detail as we go along. But let me say, and we'll follow up a little bit later in, in our message, this particular covenant, covenant that we'll be speaking about is a covenant that has both blessings and curses. And we'll be finding out more about that as we go along. So, so now we know the origin of the message, the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. But what was uh, uh, with along with that message, as it starts out before we get to the message, there's a statement in verses 2 and 3 that tell us, well, who was the message directed to? And in verse 2, it says, You elders, and even further, all the inhabitants of the land. So again, this, the lack of specifics about a targeted message, again, is a clue. This is a bit of a universal message. A message that, um, it, that we'll see, we think, has a lot of uh, application to us today. But with that being said... Who, who is the audience for the message? Let's talk about the message itself or some of the context of the message. The message was um, the devastation of the land. And it's mentioned in verses 4. We read those. Uh, uh, verses in 6 and 7, a, a powerful nation has come up against my land. Locusts have, cho uh, have chewed and devastated the agriculture in verse 4, and then in verses 6 or 7, this uh, locust horde is described as being powerful like lion's teeth and having fangs as a lioness. But in addition to the locust infestation, there's also some mention that in verses 12 and 17 and 18, there's comments about a drought. Verses... Uh, 12 mentioned the, the vines drying up, um, the pomegranate are in the fields of the trees, trees of the field are dried up. In verse 17, the seed shrivels under the clods. The grain has dried up. And then finally, if those two weren't enough, locust infestation, drought, how about wildfire? Let's look at verses 19 and 20. For you, O Lord, I, I call, for the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Ooh, pretty ca catastrophic, especially for 
an agrarian society like this whose primary livelihood revolved around the harvest and pasturing of livestock. And also, because the land was such a significant thing as part of God's covenant promise to his people, seeing the devastation of this key critical aspect of his covenant promise to them must have been just totally devastating. So with that as the backdrop, there's some interesting comments that Joel makes, that God makes through Joel to, to the audience. He says um, a number of things. For example, in back to verse 2, he says, Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. The reason this is being highlighted in this, in this portion of the book of Joel is Joel, as the prophet, is saying to the audience, this is a pretty astounding message. You need to listen to this message. And one of the main reasons it was so astounding, if you'll turn with me or direct your attention to verse 15, the reason it was so astounding is, as explained in verse 15, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. God's covenant people were being subjected to these catastrophic events. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't from some outside uh, invader or anything. It was God the Almighty who was actually inflicting these things on the people. Their covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, was the one who was the origin of these, of these um, devastating acts. So why, why was it so astounding? Well, because God was the one who was instituting this, and it was so astounding that back up to um, verses 2 and 3, Joel said to the audience, make sure to tell your children about it. It wasn't just something that was an everyday occurrence. This is meaningful. This is important. Something significant enough to tell subsequent generations about it. It's interesting, too, in verse, uh, verses 1 and 2 of Exodus chapter 10, a similar phrase is found there as well. And this is instruction the Lord gave to Moses in Exodus 10. You don't need to turn there. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show you these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. The Lord told Moses to tell Pharaoh that right before the eighth plague was sent upon the Egyptians. You know what that eighth plague was? Locusts, right. So here we are, 
Joel calling the people with their memory of their history to say, wait a minute, this isn't the first time that you've been called to remember such a catastrophic event. Something similar happened in the past, and now it's happening to you. It's worth remembering. It's worth telling your children about. In the, excuse me, in the particular case in Exodus, God was fulfilling his covenant to his people by demonstrating his glory in the salvation of his people, Israel, from, the, from slavery through judgment on Egypt. The themes of God's glory and salvation through judgment in this, in this particular case will come up later in the book of Joel as we keep moving forward. So something to remember um, as we go forward, that if Joel or God through the prophet Joel mentioned that this message was important for, for future generations to be told, do you think we might fall into that same category? I, I think so. So something so important would be important for us to uh, take note of as well. So similar to what God did in judging Egypt to then provide salvation to the people of Israel, salvation meaning freedom from slavery, now God is fulfilling his covenant to Israel in punishing their disobedience through bringing the curses on the land just as he promised he would do as a covenant-keeping God. And, and I will read some sections in Deuteronomy 28 in just a second to uh, reiterate that. But I, I want to make an important um, uh, parenthesis uh, here on that. And I think it's important to note that as I talk about God and his covenant-keeping attributes, particularly uh, with the people, um, the people of Israel, that God's covenant through Moses was not a covenant of salvation. It's very clear to, to know that. It was, however, a covenant that God made to the people and the people agreed that, that they, the people, would represent God before the nations in which, uh, before the nations in which uh, they would display God's glory in the way they interacted with others. And when they were obedient to represent God by obeying God's commands, God said that he would bless them. He also said that if they disobeyed and didn't represent him well before the other nations, particularly the nations into which they would be surrounded when they went into the land that God had promised them, he would, be, he would curse them for their disobedience. Make sure, though, that we realize that Old Testament saints were not saved because of their works or good deeds or obedience. Only those that believed in God's promise to provide a deliverer, as pictured in the sacrificial system, were justified as righteous by God. Those Old Testament saints who looked to God for justification, they trusted that God would be providing a Redeemer. Just as we look back 
to God's completed provision for a Redeemer in Christ. And I think a, a good example of this is back in Genesis 22, and just to recall the story, it's the story of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And as they were getting close to the place of sacrifice, Isaac said, well, Father, where, where is our sacrifice? And Abraham said, Son, God will be the one to provide the sacrifice. And in fact, even as Abraham in his obedience was ready to sacrifice Isaac, God stopped him and provided another sacrifice. It happened to be a lamb in that case, but the principle is God is the one that provides the sacrifice, not us. And he did so in Christ, and we're thankful for that. So, yes, amen. Um, and, you know, if, if you um, are curious about the things that I just said, that the covenant with Moses was not a covenant uh, of salvation. And some, some mistakenly call it a covenant of works. I would actually urge you to read the book of Hebrews because I think it will give you some clarification about what that covenant was actually all about. But with all, all that said, um, let's, let's go to... Um, Deuteronomy 28, and uh, it's quite a long passage, uh, but it basically describes the blessings God will shower on Israel if obedient in keeping this covenant that I mentioned, but it also describes the curses for disobedience, and there it is up there. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your room and the fruit of your ground. The increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed you, you shall, shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you do undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on the account of the evil of your deeds. Because you have forsaken me, the Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever inflammation and fiery heat and with drought, with blight and with mildew. He shall pursue you until you perish, and the heavens over your head shall be bronze. The earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Many blessings, but also curses. And we see that in the pages of Joel. We mentioned in verses 4 through 7, the locusts, the other uh, devastation of the food and vegetation, drought, the weathering of the grain, and lack of pasture, and then finally wildfire as it consumed the pasture lands and the trees. Um, you can see 
that picture that we read from Deuteronomy 28 was a fulfillment of what uh, God had said to the people through Moses. And here it is now. The people to whom Joel was speaking were actually experiencing this. So after all this, we'll go, well, what is it that, that uh, they had done such that God would do this? What, for what kind of disobedience were they being punished? Well, interestingly enough, there's really nothing clearly specific about that. But as Ben mentioned um, last Sunday, because of the type of literature here, um, this prophetic literature, lots of different uh, literary techniques are used in the display of these words. And one of them, from a poetic perspective, shows up in a couple of verses that I'll share with you in, in just a minute that give us some clues about what it might have been. So I'll ask you to look at verse 10 of Joel 1, and you see where um, the word or the phrase, the wine dries up. Do you see that there? Also in verse 12, the vine dries up. Also, the latter part of verse 12, gladness dries up. Back up to verse 11, the verse starts, Be ashamed, O tillers of soil, of the soil. So in Hebrew, the word that that we would say means dries up, has the meaning dries up, is the word habish. The word for ashamed, which was in um, uh, the very first uh, sentence in, in verse 11, be ashamed is the word habishu. You see the word play there? He is saying you should be ashamed, habishu, and as a result, the vine is hobbish, dried up. The grain is hobbish, dried up. And so that poetic play on words seems to indicate that their worship, the people's worship of God, had dried up. There's an allusion in, let's say, well, look, it's both in verse 9 and in verse 13 that the uh, priests should be lamenting because grain offering and drink offering are being withheld. Well, the, the reason they're being withheld is because they've dried up. They're not available. The grain is, is harvest has failed and the vines are dried up. Due to the plague of locusts and, and the drought in, uh, inflicted on the people by God too, for God is signifying his displeasure with their shriveled, commitment of heart in worship. The worship of the God who had graciously coveted with them and had demonstrated his salvation and protection of them so many times in past history. So, were the elders, the priests, and the people in general, were they ashamed? Habeshu, were they ashamed of Yahweh? And as a result, were they attracted and drawn to worship of other gods that were so prevalent in that land, gods of the Canaanites. It seems like 
it's the hint here is they were placing their hopes and affections on other things as demonstrated by the uh, other things besides the covenant-keeping Yahweh. And there's some several examples of the different ways that it seems to indicate that the people were uh, letting their worship drift away from Yahweh and be replaced by other affections. So let's, let's go back to verse 5. It talks about your drunkards and your drinkers of wine. Lovers of pleasure were not able to satisfy their desires because the vine had dried up. The young widow that's mentioned in, in 8, this is a really interesting verse. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. It seems to indicate this is someone who maybe was widowed years ago but continues to mourn many years afterwards. And in some ways, of course, an event like that, mourning would be appropriate. But years afterwards, continuing to mourn the lack of protection, the lack of safety that she was longing for with her husband was no longer there. In verse 9 and 10, we get back to the priests again. They're mourning uh, because the grain is destroyed and the wine dries up because there's no sacrifices available for grain um, and, and drink offerings. Did that indicate that the priests were placing, uh, or let's, let's put it this way, because worship was being denied in those ways, they, the priests, were seeing their importance in society degraded. And that was important to them. Maybe, and most likely more important than what God was trying to teach the people. No, it was important that my place in society was damaged. And then finally, in verse 11, the tillers of the soil are uh, called to be ashamed and to wail, and the vine dressers as well. Such a, an agrarian society, many people's um, sense of worth was tied up in their occupation. We don't have to be someone who farms or uh, owns a vineyard to have that happen to us. That can happen in our day and age. Uh, the kind of occupations that we all have. But there, all of these groups, seem to, it seems to indicate all these groups were getting and gaining satisfaction from something else besides uh, the worship of God. And then along with that, hints that they were being drawn away to worship other gods of the land. So, so what about us? Do we take... God's covenant love toward us in Christ for granted? Does our devotion to and worship of God seem to dry up at times? Are we ashamed of our Redeemer God who has graciously provided salvation to us in the judgment of our sin through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf? when we have opportunities to stand up for 
Christ in the workplace with family? Are we ashamed? Do we seem at times to go through the motions in our Bible reading, in coming to church? Is it because our devotions dried up? I think we all could say that that we've all had that happen to us from time to time. And I think these things are warnings to us that it can happen to us. Why else would God through Joel say, this is a message for your children's children and further generations because it can and does happen to us. Just as a side note, I mentioned that theme, God's glory and salvation through judgment. Can you think of why that's such a powerful theme as it explains how God, in his grace and mercy, executed the just the judgment that we deserved by placing it on Christ, and through that, we enjoy salvation from our sin and a time to be with God forever in eternity as he gathers us to himself at a later at uh, when he returns and comes again. And I think for those of us who have trusted in Christ, I hope that this uh, realization about God judging our sin on Christ so that we could enjoy salvation as a free gift, not anything we deserved, I hope it causes your heart and my heart to cry out in humble gratitude and worship to our covenant-keeping God. But I'll say this too, if any of you here have not trusted Christ, Christ, the, the scriptures say that he, Christ, is the only sufficient means on satisfying God's just wrath against your sin. Please don't be deluded into thinking that God's love will just let bygones be bygones when we stand before his judgment seat. Don't be deluded into thinking, well, I'm not as bad as that figure of history or that person down the street, that that will have any weight with God. It won't. The standard is the full perfection and holiness of God, and it's only through Christ that we are saved. That that standard of pure perfection and holiness is applied to us in Christ. In that case, if you have not trusted Christ, I, actually, I implore you to fly to the cross of Christ, the only provision made by God to satisfy his righteous judgment of our sin. And if you'd like to talk more about this after the service, I'd love to spend some time chatting more with you about that. So then let's move on. So what would be the proper reaction to all this proclamation by Joel to the people. Well, let's go back to uh, verse 5 and start there. 
first word in that verse, at least in this version, is awake. How about verse 8? Lament. In verse 11, be ashamed. In verse uh, 13 and 14, put on sackcloth and lament. 14, consecrate a fast. The reaction that Joel is calling the people to is a call to repentance. Not something, well, yeah, that's God's job. He'll, he'll forget about it. He'll forget. No. Repentance. Awake. Be ashamed. Interestingly enough, if you go all the way to verse 19, you can see a little bit of a change in the language. The prophet himself joins in in saying, To you, O Lord, I call. He includes himself as he joins in repentance with his cry to the Lord. And interestingly enough, uh, again, back to uh, the history of the people of Israel, let's go back to um, an, uh, a proclamation by Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8. And those, that section of 1 Kings 8 should be up uh, momentarily here. Solomon praying at the dedication of the temple. Okay, here we go. Again, this will be something that the hearers will have been familiar with. Solomon speaking in, in prayer. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, and, and, he, and by you, he's referring to the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight, mildew or locusts or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land and the gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people, Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart. Does that sound like repentance? It sure does. And stretching out his hands toward this house, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. There was already a prescription on how to react to this. Many hundreds of years before this time of Joel, and now Joel is calling the people to remember and to act on that, on that response, the proper reaction to the people of God in calamity. And while our, our circumstances in our current day are different, the same principles apply to us today. And it's interesting to note that the calamities that are mentioned in Joel were brought upon God's people. They Unlike some 
teaching that you hear these days, which is uh, and even couched in Christian language and usage that claim that um, God wants his children to be healthy and prosperous and successful, especially if you have enough faith. This book actually teaches that from time to time, even God's children will experience calamity, even those who were individually faithful. And it makes me think of um, individuals in the biblical record like Joseph. How do you think he would have reacted to hearing a health and wealth preacher? How about Daniel? Probably about the same kind of reaction Joseph probably would have had. And, frankly, we should have that same reaction. And while the United States is not Israel, um, but the church and believers in our day face the same kinds of temptations that were described here in the book of Joel. Are we, as I mentioned previously, are we tempted to be ambivalent in our worship? Tempted to be lackadaisical in our conduct of life? Not really appreciating in a humble way the work that God has done in Christ in our lives, and then what should be our proper reaction? Well, humble repentance, obedience, gratitude, and a life that represents God well before the nations. Same kind of covenant he asked the, the people of Israel there for Moses. Sometimes it's easy for us to be drawn away to place our trust in or derive significance from idols that are out there. Politics, wealth, success. Here's one that's uh, at the risk of treading on maybe some thin ice. Here's one that's actually reared its head pretty recently. The idol of safety. Especially in these COVID-19 days. And by saying that, I'm not minimizing the difficulties that many have gone through whether it be sickness, loss of job. But a frantic anxiety over what might befall me because of COVID-19, frankly, is a lack of trust in God's gracious providence and sovereignty. While we do everything we can prudently, driving or placing our trust in things like that and all the others that I just mentioned uh, are frankly are an affront to uh, the triune covenant-keeping God that we worship. So I think it's clear in the book of Joel, along with many other places in the scriptures, but specifically here, God uses calamity in the life of his people as a means of judgment to display his glory in salvation. And here, salvation means salvation from a half-hearted, fickle, mechanical faith 
and so that we would be saved from such um, lackadaisical ambivalence and rather place our trust in our great God. So, similar to the response that Joel called uh, the people to whom he was speaking, to awake, to repent, to lament. There's a proper response for us today. And that is one of humble repentance and trust in the sufficiency of God's plan of salvation in Christ with a gratitude and a heart of worship. So with all that said, as we think on these words, we now have the opportunity to gather together and express our worship by celebrating communion together. I know we'll maybe having some music uh, during that time, but let me just emphasize this celebration of communion allows us to express in worship our gratitude and celebration of Christ as the bread who came down from heaven, whose body was broken for our redemption. We celebrate in communion Christ as the true vine in which the fruit of his shed blood allows us to enter into the new covenant, confirming God is still in the covenant-keeping business. And lastly, as we gather together and celebrate communion, we look forward to Christ as the future host of a banquet at which we who are Christ's will join with him and myriads of others to celebrate his glorious and rightful reign as his guests for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your message through your prophet Joel. Thank you for patiently pursuing your people, loving them so much that concerned for them, fulfilling your covenant, your loving covenant toward them, that you did not want to let them stay in a place of ambivalence, of lethargy, of ineffectual mechanical worship, but rather you brought calamity into their lives to wake them up, to cause them to see their sin. And Lord, may we, when we are brought to such places by your gracious and mysterious providence, may we see them as a blessing from you, not, not as a means of complaint, but rather a means of blessing, a means and evidence of your grace and care for us. May we trust you in such times and look to you for repentance and revival and refreshment, Lord, as we see you working in our life for your good purposes. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.